you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. Many years ago, I worked in Belfast for a company called Open Fairways. The company had been initially set up as a membership subscription program by Johnny Packham in 1995. By the time I was employed as Director of Golf Affairs, the company was also involved in property sales for Locker and Golf Resort, which to this day is home to the only Nick Faldo signature design golf course on the island of Ireland. Nick Edmund was MD of Faldo Design during my tenure in Belfast. I was a regular caller to chat with the aforementioned Mr. J.B.S. Packham. I never had the pleasure of an introduction during my stint in Belfast. However, that would all change in 2022 when I welcomed Nick to my home course of Royal Dublin as he undertook a six-course flag-flying exercise on the east coast of Ireland on behalf of his Global Golf for Cancer program. Nick joins us today to explore his early days in golf, how it ultimately sunk its claws into him, how a legal career pivoted towards golf and travel riding, onwards to managing Nick Faldo's course design business, with the final chapter of his story to date being his efforts to increase and develop cancer awareness through his Global Golf for Cancer program. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, he's a four-time cancer diagnosis survivor. I'm very grateful to Nick for his time today. He's an inspiration showing what a positive attitude and sunny disposition can achieve. I hope you enjoy the chat. Thanks for tuning in. Nick Edmund, you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf podcast. Um, I'm very grateful that you've afforded me some time for a chat in the middle of what sounds like a very busy period for you. You've been doing a bit of travelling since we met in Royal Dublin a few months ago including a little trip to the wilds of the Norwegian Arctic Circle. What delights did you encounter at Lofoten? Lofoten in the Arctic Circle, indeed. Um, I guess we'll come on to the reason why I wanted to be at Lofoten. Um, there were well, a, cu- a couple of reasons, but um, what did I experience? One of, the, one of the most spectacular golf courses on the planet, and spectacular is probably an overused word, but... I would put it in my top three of most visually stunning golf experiences. If, if golf for you is about, you know, manicured fairways and, and golf buggies, that kind of golf, it's not for you. But if you want 18 great golf holes uh, in the most extraordinary surroundings and the unique experience, I suppose, of playing a, a great golf course at three o'clock in the morning, as, as, as I did, uh, being there in June. It's one of those, you know, again, a bit of a cliched expression, bucket list courses, but it was probably just about top of my list. And so to go there was fantastic. And then that was uh, nearly, well, a week and a half ago. And I came back and I went from Norway to the Netherlands, uh, where I was visiting four of the finest golf courses in that country and indeed in Europe. Uh, again, we'll come on to the reason perhaps why it was four golf courses. But I did visit Nordvik, Den Haagshire, uh, or The Hague, um, and Kenemar along the coast, which are, well, they're classic links courses. I felt I could have been in, in Scotland or, or the west coast of Ireland. But I also visited a club called uh, Depan. Uh, it's got, again, it's got a longer Dutch name, which I won't even try. Uh, but it's, it's, it's Utrecht, Depan. And it's fabulous golf course. It's a heathen course. For a while, for a while again, I could, I could have been at, at, at Sunningdale or Swindley Forest to some extent but 
Also, I have to say, I found it a unique Heathland-type golf course in the way that the fairways were very much like incredibly uh, tumbling fairways, as if I were on a Lynx course. Macrahanish brings to mind. I mean, maybe not such this contoured as some of the fairways at Macrahanish, but let's pick Royal St George's in terms of undulating dune and terrain. And at times, like on the fairways, I felt I could have been at somewhere like Royal St George's, that with the surroundings of a, a Sunningdale. So a very special golf course. And as I say, great to visit four courses in the Netherlands so soon after visiting the most northerly great course in the world. It's a tough life you lead. It really is a tough life. Maybe we got into the meat of things just a little bit too soon there. So for those that don't recognise the name Nick Edmund, perhaps you can give us some broad brushstrokes of an introduction to Nick Edmund, former criminal barrister, author, marketeer, former MD of Nick Faldo Golf Design, and most importantly, four-time cancer survivor, survivor, serial fundraiser, cancer awareness advocate, flyer of flags on fourth holes, and general all-round inspirational good egg. <laughs> well, that's a very interesting summary. Yes, I mean, I feel I've had I've been very fortunate, first of all, let's say that, um, despite having had cancer four times, I've had the incredibly fortunate life in that golf and travel have been my two major passions. And I did get in working in in those environments very early on, as you alluded to. I did initially start off life in law. I qualified as a barrister back in 1984. That's, that's a long time ago now, isn't it? The only area of law I really wanted to practice was criminal law. But I got seduced into golf quite early on in a legal career. And I often say that I, I switched from the bar to the 19th hole because the way it happened was a, was a good friend who had published a book at, at a fairly young age called Travelling the Turf, which was a guide to horse racing all around Great Britain from air to, oh, I can't think of a race course beginning with Z, but Weatherby will do. It was all about how to visit these great race courses, but also a bit of the history and perhaps importantly, where to stay nearby and and what to do nearby. It was a wonderful coffee table guide that had fantastic illustrations, artwork illustrations. And that book, in fact, did about 17 editions. Anyway, the the early success of that book led the author or publisher to say, publisher and author, to to approach me, who who we'd been to college together uh, in Bristol. He approached me and uh, said, would I like to write a golf book that he wanted to produce along similar lines? So... Uh, a where to play, where to stay guide if you like to golf. And, and that book was called Following the Fairways. And that book did 13 or yeah, 13 or 14 editions. So that was my introduction to golf. And Following the Fairways was, was about the great golf courses of Britain and Ireland. And I had visited a number of those, but that book caused me to visit obviously a lot more and gave me a good knowledge of, of golf throughout Great Britain and Ireland. Uh, and that led on to that that golf writing led on doing that book led on to me writing for Lynx magazine based in America specifically on classic courses of Great Britain and Ireland but it also led me into into a golf writing career uh, which included writing and or editing 27 golf books specifically about, about golf courses but I also did golf yearbooks and gave me a knowledge of a, a very broad knowledge of golf around the world should we say that led into another career uh, managing Faldo Design. I met Nick Faldo through the golf writing, and I guess we'll explore 
that a little bit more later on. But the golf writing did lead to, and my knowledge of golf courses, I suppose, led, and maybe a bit of legal background thrown in, led to me being involved at the start of Father Design. And I ran that business for 15 years, exactly. And at the end of, I say at the end of that, when I decided in my early 50s that I wanted to, to do one more thing in golf, but I wasn't sure where it was, that led me up a mountain, literally. I found myself um, uh, in the Himalayas walking to raise funds for Macmillan Cancer Support, which is a wonderful, wonderful UK cancer charity, I should I should point out. I had no particular connections with, with cancer at the time, but that led on to me founding a cancer foundation involving golf. I, to go a long story short, I wanted to link golf with cancer using my golf context. And what emerged was Global Golf for Cancer. There was a two-year pause at the beginning because I hadn't had cancer and I wasn't sure that I was the, a credible campaigner, if you want to put it that way. And then, lo and behold, I wake up one morning with cancer. As I think I've said, or as you said, I've had cancer four times now. That has been during the development of the Global Golf for Cancer campaign. So how my life has gone from law to golf to golf course design, golf writing, and then to a campaign about involving getting the golf community supporting cancer fighters is is strange, but life can be strange. Yeah, look, I think it's probably useful maybe to, to deal with one Mr. Edmund's life uh, chronologically. <laughs> you did you you did you did tell me not to call you Mr. Edmund, but so apologies on that score. <laughs> Uh, you were born and raised, I believe, in Exeter mm. in Devon in the southwest of England. Uh, none of your family played golf. I'm interested to know how you were first introduced to the game. Quite right. None of my family did and still don't play golf. A couple of my what, my sons play a little golf. But no, I was brought up in Exeter, not particularly known for its golf. And uh, at the age of 11, a friend couldn't join my group of friends for a game of football because he was playing pitch and putt with his parents. And we thought, what on earth is that? Anyway, he said, look, you really, really should come along. It's fun. So I went to a pitch and putt golf course in Exeter at the age of 11, swung at a ball for the first time and, of course, missed it. Missed it the second time, I think. But at the end of 18 holes of pitch and putt, I was hooked. And, I mean, you know, literally, I wanted to go back the very next day. And... Ever since then, I've been fascinated by golf. Uh, I didn't join a golf club, I guess, until I was about 13 or 14. But that until I suppose I went to university and got got, got involved in other things. Um, golf was, through my teens, golf was absolutely my passion. So that's how I got into it, by chance. I understand that you may have been roughly 16 in 1976. So please forgive me if my maths are no, gone, 15, gone a bit awry right. there. I was born in 1960, 15. so yeah. Okay, 60. not too far away then, so. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the Open Championship in 1976 was held in Birkdale. And this may have been the event that pushed you completely over the edge into that marvellous mania that Alistair Cook wrote so eloquently about. The 76 Open, of course, was won by Johnny Miller with a 19-year-old Severiano Ballesteros finishing in second. I'm not sure if you were on site on the final day. Obviously, uh, on that fateful day, Sevi would hit a little runner, feathered up to about two feet through a gap between the greenside bunkers on 18. Were you there? And if so, what do you recall from that particular scene? I was there, Shane, uh, Mr. Derby, if you like. <laughs> 
No, I was there, Shane. I'm not particularly tall now, and as, as a 15-year-old who hadn't yet had a, had a growth spurt, I was there, but I didn't see a lot because the crowds were massive. I was fortunate to be in that huge crowd surrounding the 18th Green when Savvy hit his famous little low pitch and run between the bunkers. I saw, I certainly saw bits of it, but what I remember is the atmosphere was just extraordinary, and quite clearly Savvy had captivated that crowd with his daring do form of golf his 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 charisma even at 19 he was incredibly charismatic and i had gone to that open which was my first open as a 15 year old cheering for jack nicholas because he was my golfing hero at the time and i suspect that since that day in july 1976 savvy has always been my golfing hero so it yes it did it it certainly is a, is a landmark memory in my in my golfing life why do you think maybe that it is that the Irish and the UK golf fans adopted the son of Pedrena uh, as, as one of their own? I used the word charisma just now, I mean, uh, to describe Seve. Charisma is a very hard word to define because I, I, I think it is about uniqueness. It's about being incredibly special. If I said in my lifetime, the most charismatic footballer, and this is showing my age, but George Best without any question, I, I think it certainly contributed to the fact my eldest son is called George. He had an extraordinary charisma. Of course, he was a brilliant footballer, but he was just such a unique individual, as is Seve. Seve has this personality that is, uh, it just captivates people. And of course, it helps if you're if you're dashingly good looking, as Seve was, as George Best was. That's part of the charisma. He was just adored by everyone, everything but, but, but I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. He had a unique talent that has made him a one-of-a-kind. One you know, I don't think, you know, a bit like Elvis. It's, it's just, you've only got to mention the name Seve, and it, it just speaks volumes. I'm minded just to recall one of the tribute shows that was on for Seve after he passed away, and, you know, the, the great former sports presenter in, in the UK, Desmond Lynham, was sort of asked, you know, you know, what are your rec recollections of Seve? And he sort of said, well, first of all, I'd like to look like Seve. <laughs> Second of all, I'd like to play golf like Seve. Yeah. Third of all, I'd like to speak English the way Seve speaks English. Yes. And finally, I'd like to speak Spanish the way Seve speaks Spanish. Ah, yeah. So that kind of, uh, that kind of encapsulates, encapsulates yeah, no, it the does. whole thing. It, you know? it, it, it does, absolutely. And I, uh, yeah, I regard myself as in incredibly fortunate to now have a, have a close relationship with his family and quite recently worked on a book with my great friend, the photographer David Cannon, all about Seve's life. So, yeah, I feel fortunate in that regard. Seve was incredibly special. Excellent. Well, obviously, he played you know a, a not an insignificant part in terms of you know get golf's claws hooked into you. I suppose if maybe we look at your initial career in in the in the legal sphere, obviously you'd go on to attend a university in Bristol undoubtedly the best preparation for a career in golf writing, destination <laughs> marketing and golf course construction. Your initial legal career would see you move to London and furthering your career as a criminal barrister, as you said. I'm interested to know whether your legal studies led you in the direction of golf or just away from practicing law. My legal studies, although crime was the only area of law I did practice and, and only area of law I ever wanted to, to practice, I particularly started a career in criminal prosecution but it was at the time when the Crown Prosecution Service was set up in the UK and that caused a lot of work 
uh, well, to, to be taken from young aspiring criminal barristers uh, to effectively the civil service, the, the Crown Prosecution Service. I don't, I don't intend to denigrate it by saying that, but I didn't effectively want to become a, uh, yeah, a Crown Prosecutor working for the government uh, as opposed to as opposed to an individual practicing that career was still possible but as i say early on it was very difficult and and when somebody offered me the opportunity to write a book about golf i thought initially i'll just put my legal career on the back burner for a year during that year i then get married and again having a regular income was fairly important i also married a lawyer and and still am married to that same lawyer so law has, has continued in my life, but my passion for golf, I suppose, I, I use the word was seduced into writing this golf book, and and I wrote it, and the book went did go very well, and, I, and a second edition followed, and and fairly soon I was invited to to write other pieces for other publications, and and I thought, I guess it had got law had gone on the back burner, and i can i can assure you that 35 years later where whatever it is it's it, it stayed on the back burner but it's played a part of my life i mean managing founder design i was responsible for negotiating the contract so uh the fact that i was a barrister i think helped i, I think clients probably didn't want to pull a fast one on founder design because they were dealing with a barrister or a lawyer or <laughs> they didn't know that that i didn't have a huge amount of experience but I, th I think being a barrister and qualifying as a barrister was was something I certainly don't regret. And I and I and even though I rarely sort of wish I'd been a, a successful lawyer, uh, my wife has been a successful lawyer, so I've, I've lived that life indirectly anyway. And I've been fortunate though to live a life in in my passion, my twin passions of golf and travel. That has been what my careers have been about. Yeah, maybe if we take a look at, at following the fairways, sure. um, and we must, I guess, the precursor to this particular section, we must, of course, remember that we're speaking about a pre-internet age, where gems such as Cruden Bay, Neffenin District, the Macrahanish, Saunton, Silliton Solway were most likely unknown unknowns. I'm really imagining following the fairways series to be a precursor to Instagram, Twitter, and other social feeds particularly in terms of important information such as place to stay, perhaps even recommendations with regard to having a, a drink or a, a bite to eat. Mm -hmm. You've obviously been involved in terms of writing or editing 27 books in total, as you said, 13 of which were obviously the annual iterations of Following the Fairways, first published in 1987. What can you tell us about Following the Fairways series of books? Uh, and, and what can you tell us about, you know, what your what you're the most proud of in relation to the series of 13 books? Well, I'll just start with that last point. I think probably most proud of the fact that I did write and edit a golf book at the age of 26, 27. I, I suppose when I see a lot of 26, 27 year olds now, I think, gosh, I'm, yeah, I'm surprised that I w was able to, to write that book. I, initially, it included 50 essays on 50 of the greatest courses in the British Isles. You know, I don't think I wrote 50 essays during the, the whole of my time at school and university. So it was, it was a, I suppose, a fairly daunting task, albeit a very pleasurable one, learning about these golf courses. But yeah, I'm proud of the fact that 13 editions were published, so it was a successful book. Uh, and it, it introduced me to so many wonderful golf courses in Great Britain and Ireland, which became my specialty, if you like. Yeah, those things I'm most proud of. I, the point you made about the, the, the pre-Twitter age, etc., what killed following the fairways is that 
what made is it is a hard expression, isn't it? What made following the fairways probably it, it was a book for its time, and you're quite right. The internet age, and I would actually particularly highlight websites. Every golf club has a has a website. If it's a half decent website, it will give you a lot of the information about how to play, how much it costs to play, who to contact, the location of the course, etc. All those factual and admin, administrative information was in following fairways. What I think following the fairways certainly added to that, and I I, I think we've lost. You don't write a a website and you don't have room on Twitter and I suppose you do to some extent on Instagram, but to actually give some colour, some stories to the golf courses, some detail. You know, one thing I'm I mourn the loss of in the in the internet age is going into that detail. You know, the classic uh, example being I suppose the the stories that Herbert Warren Wind wrote about Dornock and about Bally Bunyan that changed those golf courses history forevermore he wrote in-depth articles i believe in the new yorker these articles are probably seven pages long and goodness knows how many words it's not impossible to to find platforms for that level of detail in writing but they're very rare and and they're very kind of in the background i feel now today it's all about i don't want to sound like a dinosaur here but it is very much about sound bites those sound bites are, are are linked to our feeling of being time poor. Yeah. However, and obviously on a on the last podcast episode, I had Stephen Proctor, who is a very accomplished golf writer. I'm sure you've you've come across Stephen, and you know he bemoaned to a certain degree. Obviously, over the last sort of fifteen to twenty years, there's been less and less and less of that sort of long form writing in in publications just just full stop you know but funnily enough i think as maybe sports departments and and editorial departments become smaller and you know the, the squeeze comes on the, the the journalist i mean there are other avenues as you said i mean you know substack and you know the likes of of you know great writers like um alistair tate and jeff shackleford and and even a little bit of Richard Pennell on the on the Stymied blog, like I mean, there are, and and Meg McLaren. I mean, you know, there's, there's some there's some great writing out there. You know, you just need to know where it is and 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 what what rock to turn up to have a look or to sample it. You know. Yes, I, I suppose I'm saying it it, 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 it isn't mainstream anymore. Um, but you're you're right; you can still find it. I just I don't think a book of that nature would be as popular as Following the Fairways was in its time. Oh no! Fair point. Fair point. I mean, I mean, I, I've I must confess I've seen pictures of following the fairways online. Many pictures, in fact, and it it strikes me as that following the fairways and the illustrations contained therein are somewhat reminiscent of Harry Roundtree's efforts in Darwin's The Golf Course of the British Isles. For you, in thinking about those illustrations and pictures. What role do you think good quality images play in publications? A huge role, I'm sure. The books, you're right. There was a, there was a, um, a hint of, of the, the, the Roundtree images that appeared in, in Darwin's seminal book, 1910, wasn't it? Wonderful book about uh, Darwin's book about the courses of Great Britain and Ireland at the time uh, with, I don't know how many, 30 illustrations by Roundtree, uh, watercolours. Following the Fairways did include... But, various pieces of artwork, uh, watercolours, oil painting images, didn't focus on photography. I think that was the thing that it 
made it one of the things that made it different. It was a book that contained golfing images that weren't photographic. Having having said that, uh, photography. Um, two of my closest friends are golf photographers, and golf photography certainly played a played a huge part in the, in the books I, I've been involved with subsequent to following the fairways and, and indeed links magazine great golf imagery particularly photographic i suppose brings golf courses to life and draws people into wanting to to, to learn more about the golf courses an old cliche that picture paints a thousand words was that's certainly true of a very good picture and it's certainly true of the images of somebody like david cannon who has been a friend for 30 plus years and is probably the world's preeminent golf photographer I've been fortunate to do a, a number of golf books with David and, and in many ways his superb photography makes the work of a golf writer easier because the pictures are helping to relay the story. But as I say, I suppose, perhaps first and foremost, they, they absolutely draw you to wanting to, to know more about what's behind the, the image. That's that, one of the things that made Seve uh, such, a, such an icon were the iconic images that David and others took of Seve because his charisma came through. You're obviously hugely charismatic if you met him face to face and, and, and experienced the aura around him, but the images of what he did were, were, again, as I say, drew you to golf. Interesting that you mentioned David. I'm vividly recalling that image, that all action shot of Seve, maybe post, post-strike, all action, Everything moving, white polo, navy, Sassinger jumper, and the green. Uh, that's the one. Yeah, the green, the <laughs> right green trousers. That's a yeah. that's a that's a cannon, isn't it? It certainly is. You signed that picture, but you're right. It's it it, it it's it's a picture that speaks volumes, doesn't it? It, it not only does it say that's Sevy, but it says, "Wow, golf can be exhilarating." To me, yeah. I mean, I mean, Rod Rod Murray, who's host of the Good Good Golf podcast in Australia. You know he, th- that charisma piece that you were speaking about. He says, you know, whatever whatever it is, Seve had it, and and he said, obviously Greg Norman has it, yeah. and I guess as you say, it's it's quite hard to quantify. And and in modern day, Rory has it. Rory has it. Correct. David will tell you he's he's the most exciting golfer to f- photograph um, in today's world. There's uh, an aura around Rory, and a, a sense of excitement about him when he plays golf he plays golf in a, in a fairly cavalier way different from Seve but cavalier in his way and, and people are drawn to that oh they are absolutely we'll drag you back maybe a little bit yeah. to uh, following the fairways again and I know not maybe necessarily the first volume or edition as you got into the series you, you started to create some ranking uh, lists now the more I'm exposed to golf both home and abroad the more I realise that sub- subjectivity and awareness are important considerations in terms of in terms of ranking. I understand that as the years progressed with finding, uh, following the fairways, you began to establish some form of course rankings within the publication. I came across a recent-ish interview that you uh, you did with Rand Morissette on Golf Club Atlas in 2020, where you said the following: Looking back, I think I was trying to make a bit of a statement. Namely, there's more to golf in Great Britain and Ireland than its famous old traditional golf courses. And perhaps this was exacerbated by the fact that the links list was inevitably comprised almost entirely of courses fitting that description. 
Maybe at the time I was also a little dazzled by the likes of Loch Lomond and Mount Juliet, and not yet having travelled quite so extensively, I believed some of the new GBI and I courses to be more exceptional than in fact they actually are. So do I now think the best 5 or 10 inland non-links courses built between 1950 and 2000 are as good as the top 5 or 10 golden age Heathland courses crafted in the early part of the last century? No. But then the latter are masterpieces. Now, how has your appreciation of world-class golf changed since your first ranking attempts through the pages of, of, of Finding the Fairways? And how have you gone about facilitating that? Yes, I mean, r- r- rankings, as you said, right at the beginning, are very subjective. And, and certainly I didn't I didn't want... These were the following fa- the fairways rankings, and as editor, they were my rankings. And I wasn't trying to say that they represented, a, you know, some huge panel of experts and that therefore they were gospel i was trying to add a, a bit of color and always trying to add another unique or different aspect to the book so i thought do we following the fairways ranking of golf courses after all this was a book about golf courses in great britain and ireland it was a good idea and but it, it, it does come with issues and i'm proud of the fact that we did separate the links courses from the non non-links courses because to compare a links course it's hard enough comparing a links course with another links course but to compare it with a sunningdale uh, for instance um it, i i personally think is, is is impossible so having split out the links courses i realized that they were full of very traditional courses and, and the inland courses i say to make a statement i was impressed by some of the new courses that are, that were appearing in i guess we're talking about the 90s you mentioned Loch Lomond, and Mount Juliet. I was dazzled by them because I hadn't seen uh, their equivalents around the world. And when I said that maybe they weren't, uh, uh, there wasn't meant to be a criticism of those those new courses, but it was perhaps rather the opposite. Having seen so many courses around the world, I tell you, I do think Great Britain and Ireland is incredibly fortunate with how good the Lynx courses actually are, but also how good some of those traditional inland courses I, I am talking about particularly about the heathland courses in england how good they are i mean uh, having been to places that are revered around the world for their wonderful settings pinehurst being an example don't tell me the setting at pinehurst is more beautiful than the setting at sunningdale or west sussex or or uh, st george's hill because i don't think it is i'm not going to debate which are the better golf courses but we're incredibly fortunate in great britain about the heritage we have in our golf courses the new courses are not so special because they seem to be replicated around the world whereas the great heathland courses weren't maybe just like our links courses they can't be replicated around the world the the conditions just don't exist to grow you know the heather and pine that happens on those heathland courses splashes of gorse or whatever that there are sand courses around the world but they don't seem to have that rich environment that we're fortunate to have in Britain and Ireland and with links courses just as right at the beginning of this conversation we talked about my going to Holland and visiting uh, uh, those wonderful courses on the coast of the Netherlands that there are few, very few of them compared to how many great links courses there are in Britain and Ireland one of the things it's made me realize is how incredibly fortunate Great Britain and Ireland is to have the golf courses it does never mind the history now what what 100% and I guess having having listened to Frank Pont speak with regard to the raw material that's on that 
North Sea coast in the Netherlands. You know, when the likes of Kenemer and Norwich and whatnot were built, I guess back in the 30s, there was no European rules with regard to special areas of conservation and whatnot. And I guess there probably wasn't a huge demand for golf just full stop in the Netherlands. However, obviously, as, as, as the environment became more and more of an issue over there, then the ability to build additional links golf courses became less and less and less possible. So I, I do understand that there's a lot of there's a lot of dunescape there on the coast of the Netherlands, but just it'll never be built on because, for want of a better word, the environmentalists will probably uh, probably have an issue with that. Unfortunately, yeah, that's a fair point. But but also, what you can't build on any link site now. You, what one, the one thing you cannot build is history and tradition, and to me that is important in golf. Part of the thrill of playing a Presswick is just just knowing feeling and sensing that history i mean you really feel you're going to bump into old tom morris behind the third green at, at presswick um and uh, uh yeah you can just absolutely i mean st andrews is an obvious example but north berwick the history and tradition is is some of it's indescribable you have to feel it all i'm saying about those links courses is yeah you maybe had a build a links course if you've got the permissions, as you say, even if you've got the permissions, you can't add in that, that sense of history and tradition. You could always call it a tradition like no other and just wing it. <laughs> yeah, just look at the honours board. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, by my rudimentary mathematics, uh, obviously you said 13 editions mm. of Following the Fairways. You obviously published or edited 14 further books on mm -hmm. golf. What can you tell us about some of the other publications you've been involved in either writing or editing? Okay, well, I have written a book about The Stroke Saver Guide to Classic Courses of Great Britain and Ireland is a book I'm proud of. But I did I did nine books on, nine golf yearbooks. Uh, th three of them were the Benson Hedges Golf Yearbook, three were the Heineken World of Golf, and three were a yearbook I devised, which was the Ping Women's Golf Yearbook. And those books were essentially about the whole golfing year the professional but also amateur the the world golfing year in all all the continents so i was writing a summaries or or, or involving contributors to write summaries about the us tour the japan tour senior golf amateur golf all four majors i would write a piece plus there would be a piece by a contributor about four majors as I said, all the various tours. So the, the golfing season worldwide, and I did, having done nine of those books, it gave me a very good broad knowledge of golf and the pro golf, but also the amateur scene, but particularly, of course, the professional game. And again, a bit of the history of it, the majors, because it did document all the, the roles of honour, etc. But I suppose in that period between 1989 and 1995, which coincided with pretty... I would say golden age of golf. It was it was Seve, it was Faldo, it was Greg Norman, it was Nick Price, it was Jose Maria. Well, it was um, it was a great period of golf. That was when I was doing the the, the nine golf yearbooks. And I think if I, if I were to go on Mastermind, my my specialist subject would be golf worldwide between 1989 and 1995. That was a period when I was doing a lot of golf writing as well. But yes, uh, life life moves on, and I'm certainly not an expert in in, in the the world of golf in 2022. But uh, but but that base of knowledge has has been very useful and useful for what I'm doing now. 
looking back on your writing career thus far, mm. what advice would you proffer to any budding John Huggins, Mike Clayton's, Eamon Lynch's or Lauren Rubenstein's? Lauren Rubenstein, I was speaking with him yesterday. Um, the doyen of Canadian golf. Is he enjoying his uh, trip up to Dornoch? He, indeed, he's at Dornoch. Yes, that's why we were in yeah. communication. Um, great people you've just mentioned, and, and certainly who am I to, or you did say budding ones, budding writers. If you're writing about golf courses, which, as I say, became my specialty, one of the things I found very useful was I didn't feel, I think you may disagree with me on this, I didn't feel I necessarily had to play the golf course. I mean, I'm not an expert player. I was a decent golfer when I was younger, but I, you know, I was never a professional golfer. So I didn't feel writing about a course I necessarily had to play it. And in fact, from my perspective, I would rather walk a course, walk a course in some detail, go and stand on the on you know the back tees and go and walk on a number of the greens, but walk the course in detail, let's say over a period of two hours, as opposed to playing a golf course in four hours plus when your own your mind's focused on your golf ball. And where you've got where you've hit your golf ball. If you walk a course, you you and you're looking around, you're you're sensing the golf course and the golf holes. To me, you you learn so much more uh, about a golf course, I think, by walking it than by playing it. If you're writing about golf, the other thing I would say is, if you're writing a story about one specific golf course, again, you want to convey what makes this course special, unique. What is its personality? And there's no substitute for a bit of hard work and research. It's not hard to do that these days into the course's history and its traditions. Go inside the clubhouse, get a feel for the place, get a sense. Architects talk about a sense of place. And I think in golf writing, you get a sense of place, of an individual course's character by not just by playing around a golf there. That's what I'd say. I'm not. I'm not going to disagree with what you said there. I would, I, I, and you're lucky that you, you, you mentioned that you, you did take a walk around. I wouldn't be a proponent of writing reviews on places that you've not seen at all, 100%. or indeed, or, or indeed via either Google Earth or or just looking at, at pictures from the website. Um, and, and and certainly, I guess I have taken to, in addition to walking around while not playing. You know, taken to trying to play places on a number of occasions to actually further develop that, particularly classic golf courses. You know, that, that are maybe a little bit like an onion. That the more you play, the more you actually get to uncover the layers of strategy and interest that are there. But most certainly, I I would completely completely concur with your sense of place comment because. You know, in the same way as, and for for the life of me, I think it was maybe Darwin, or one of the Golden Age writers, used to say that you could, you know, you could make a good guess as to where the golfer came from, be, dependent on how he played the game, because obviously that's sort of feeding into the character of the golf course and what sort of shots are are you know, do you need to hit it hit it a long way off the tee? Do you need to be a really good pitcher and putter because the greens are particularly small, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So I think I think in terms of to get a, a taste and a feel for for a golf course, it's very very important to, to try and soak in some of that mm. sense of place. Yeah, I th- I'm certainly not advocating you don't play the course. I'm saying if you've got, if it depends how much time you've got as well, doesn't it? I mean, I would say that that if you've got plenty of time to write about a piece about a golf course, play it and walk it. 
and walk it. Um, but if you've only got a couple of hours, you know, you've only got one afternoon, I personally would spend that afternoon not playing the course. I would spend that afternoon, A, walking the course, and B, having using the extra time to go into the clubhouse and, and just, just soak in the atmosphere of the place. And, and maybe, no, maybe sure. do a bit of homework about the surroundings of the place. And by that, I mean its location, its town, its character. Because, because if you're writing a story as well, to be honest, a lot. I, I think the most interesting articles about golf are not necessarily about the, the, the bunker on the 7th or how contoured the green was on the 13th. It, probably, it quite possibly will relate, relate to the history of tradition or character of the course and or the area. They add the colour. So again, I'm I'm not saying don't don't write um, uh, about about the depth of the strategic architectural qualities of golf course. I mean those are interesting, but they are also for a specific audience as well. And 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 um, at the end of the day, you, you you want people to be interested in what you're writing about. No, no, absolutely. And I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend Richard Pennell's blog again, sub, uh, the Substack blog, uh, uh, Pitchmarks. He is a delightful article, which actually a former colleague of yours, Tony Deere from Lynx magazine, I'm not going to say goaded him into, but certainly suggested mm -hmm. that. How about writing an article on uh, golf club car parks? And he did. Wow. And it's it's bloody phenomenal. Yeah, so it yeah. is. I bet. Um, yeah. So it just goes, it goes to show what's possible. And indeed, uh, what's possible from a, from a, a writer of, of golf books to sashay neatly into managing director of Faldo Golf Design from 1997 mm. to 2012. Obviously, you became Nick's managing director of the, the design business in 1997, a position, as I said, you would hold for the best part of 15 years. I understand that your first meeting with Nick may have been at Ballyliffin in County Donegal and may have included penning a golfing itinerary for him to facilitate viewing and experiencing some of the many Irish links courses that he had yet to visit. What can you tell us about how the opportunity with Faldo design materialised? So in 1992, Nick Faldo won the Open at Muirfield, uh, his second Open, third Open. And I hadn't met him, I hadn't met his manager, but uh, a few months after he'd won the Open and was world number one, a friend of mine who was working on a golf book with me had read the fact that Nick wanted somebody to, to, to paint a picture of the 18th at Muirfield and he would buy it, something like that. He was interested in a picture of Muirfield. Now, the friend in question I had, uh, we were working on a book uh, that would include paintings of golf courses. And uh, he said, God, I'd love to paint a picture of Muirfield. He lived in Manchester. Um, and knew I was in the golf business uh, to an extent and said, could you make contact with Nick Faldo's manager? So to cut a long story short, I did that. And uh, this was early 1993 now. I was sitting down with Nick Faldo's manager discussing um, golf courses, golf pictures. And, and I guess the subject wandered on to how many courses has Nick Faldo seen in Ireland? Because at the time I, I was also helping, beginning to help market uh, Ballyliffin Golf Club in Ireland, which was was uh, a place I'd been introduced to a couple of years earlier through my golf writing, and which very few people knew about. Very few people knew had heard of Ballyliffin. I had two years earlier, and I'm supposed to be writing books about 
golf courses in Great Britain and Ireland, but that's how unknown Ballyliffin was then. Anyway, I was trying to champion Ballyliffin. I'm sitting in front of Nick Faldo, who's manager, and I said, how many courses has he seen in Ireland? Nick Faldo's manager said, not enough. Of course, he's seen those courses where he played Irish Opens, but that was basically it. And I said, well, he needs to... Yeah. And one Irish Opens, and he won in... Yeah, uh, he won. He, he was... Who was Glenn, uh, and he won uh, Killarney, didn't he? And maybe Foda Foda well, Island. Close, close. He won ninety one, ninety two at Killarney, and yeah. ninety three. He won at uh, Mount Juliet in a playoff with Ola Fabel. Yeah. See, I told you it was my era. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, I recommended that he saw some links courses in Ireland, and of course, I threw in Ballyliffin as um, a place that I no, but a place I thought would fascinate him and 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 uh, would interest would interest him. Anyway, move forward to June ninety three. I'm at Ballyliffin on the ground. This helicopter arrives, um, and uh, having suggested to Nick Fowler's manager that he visit Ballyliffin, and I threw in a few more, including Merva, then going down to Ross's Point onto Ballybunion, which I said he has to see that. That was you know, I, I, Ballybunion has always blown my mind as an incredible piece of land that yeah. every architect should study. So anyway, he he uh, he lands with. He, at the time, Nick was world number one by some way. He was a defending, reigning Open champion. He was going for three Irish Opens in a row. So the week just before the Irish Open, this trip was arranged. I was on the ground. He arrived at Ballyliffin. He was initially going to play nine holes of the old links. He ended up playing all 18 and fell in love with it. I can still, I can still remember. He stood on the first tee of the old links at Ballyliffin. And uh, there were a few people around him because... When it got out, uh, when a helicopter appears in in Ballyliffin in 1993, it was it was a rare occasion. Anyway, and that, so he stood on the first tee of the old links, and I can still remember him saying, "So, do I bump and run, or do I run and bump?" That's what he sort of said because he was looking at those extraordinary fairways that, to me, are, are completely unique. Uh, Ballyliffin old links is is one of my favourite places on earth, and fortunately, Nick Faldo felt the same about it. So he played all 18. He did He did go to Donegal. He went to Merva. He went to Ross's Point. He went to Ballybunion. Then he went and won his third Irish Open. Having having lit, having had the privilege of walking around all 18 with him at Ballyliffin, when I say he was world number one at the time, I probably, and, and that week won the Irish Open three in a row. And then two weeks later, nearly should have won the Open at St. George's, came second to Greg Norman, who shot 64 on the final day. And but for that, Nick would have won that as well. I saw him at the absolute peak of his career, and I can still remember thinking, wow, the ball is on a piece of string. That's how much total control he had over a golf ball. And as I say, I witnessed that first time at Ballyliffin. How I progressed into Falder design is that I knew on that trip was a, a chap called Steve Smiles, golf, golf, an American golf architect, whose, whose work Nick admired, uh, they went on to, to to create, well, they were, in fact, creating Charlotte Hills together. So Nick already had this interest in golf architecture. He was a client of IMG at the time. And IMG would present golf design opportunities for him. It was largely a, a case of a signature design. Nick had and has a, a, a passion for, 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 for golf architecture or golf course design and feels he can certainly contribute certain things. So... But, but I think he felt, and I, I do believe one of the reasons he left IMG was because he wanted he wanted his own, he's a very independent chap, as you know, and uh, a, 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 
unique unique individual he what he wanted to do things his way and he wanted his own golf course design business he couldn't really have his own golf course design business whilst a client of img so i think one of the reasons he actually left img at the end of 96 beginning of 97 was because he wanted to create his own design business as well as do his own thing in other areas so i had kept in touch with his manager his manager knew i was a lawyer his manager knew i had a pretty thorough background of golf courses around the world. He asked me when Nick and he broke away from ING, he asked me to look at a few design opportunities that Nick had. Uh, uh, I could see that Nick was, as I say, very interested in golf architecture. I, I didn't know that many golf architects, but but I knew I knew enough about the subject to help him establish Valder Design. And that was the very beginning of Valder Design really in 1997. And, uh, uh, I guess my my knowledge of it of the design business grew in that fifteen year year period. Nick's knowledge of golf course design grew in that period, and and I you know I, I like to think I know what I can do and what I can't do, and I knew I could help on the legal side if you like in terms of overseeing the design contracts. I knew I could help. Uh, I I had and hopefully have certain marketing skills. I knew I could represent him in uh, um, negotiating but also helping to find negotiate the, the, the contract itself and then oversee the contract the new business if you like as well and I, I used to say to people that I did everything except the design and, and in the early stages that was probably true obviously we worked with with I always felt it was good for Nick to be exposed to uh, uh, architectural thinking of uh, various good architects. So the likes of Steve Smyers and Brian Kearney, and indeed initially we nearly worked on a project, we started a project with Gil Hans. So I thought it was good for Nick to be exposed to, to very good architects, ones that he could work with and relay his ideas. Because as I say, Nick, Nick certainly has some unique skills that he can bring to the party. Uh, I, I think uh, where you go wrong in golf architecture, if you're working with a Nick Faldo uh, or a, I guess a Jack Nicholas or a Greg Norman, don't pretend that those guys are the architect. They can certainly contribute and they can they can influence uh, the design of a golf course with with their knowledge. And and certainly Nick has, has great visualization skills. He understands strategy probably like nobody else. Don't pretend though that he's the guy overseeing the irrigation and the and the uh, drainage or whatever because. Uh, you know that, that's what architects do. Nick never was a golfer. Doesn't pretend he's a golf architect. It was Nick. The business was called Fowler Design. He could certainly contribute to the design, work closely with an architect, and help create a, a good product. That was, I think, because we didn't go in and pretend that Nick was the architect. That helped. That certainly made me feel relaxed. I was very confident that Nick could bring certain unique skills to the party. I was also confident that we either work with or as the business developed, employed very good architects who Nick could work with and, and create a very special pro product. And, and I felt that what I could bring to it was overseeing that, overseeing the relationships with clients. I think client relationships is something that I'm, that I'm not bad at. And add that to my general knowledge of golf, as I say, and, and I felt that was useful in, in winning business, in managing business and, I, I had 15 great years is all, is all I can say about that. You reference Nick being a unique individual 
Now, I've not had the pleasure of, of meeting him. Uh, undoubtedly a class act when it comes to his golfing career. Possibly an acquired taste and NBC commentary duties. I'll leave that one up to the audience to, to determine. The term grow the game is often bandied about, sometimes erroneously, by elements in the golf space to justify certain courses of action that player, event series, governing body or manufacturer may take from time to time. McFaldo certainly has done his bit to nurture the game through his Faldo series of events, facilitating high-performance amateur competition with access to amateur world ranking points around the globe. Notwithstanding any of the above, any chance you can lift the curtain and, and let us know a, a little bit of what Nick's like? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, first of all, I would make, you alluded to the Faldo series, the, 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 the biggest junior golf program in the world, which I don't think Nick probably gets enough credit for. And to me, he will leave two incredible legacies. I mean, first of all, UK's most successful ever golfer with six majors. That's a phenomenal achievement. But add to that, that the world's biggest junior program, which was certainly his idea, and he's stuck with it for, for 25 years, last 26 years now, and I've seen him. I was I was fortunate to be a trustee of the Faldo series during my time managing Faldo Design, and it's a, it's it's a, rem, a, a remarkable creation. And as I said, I don't think he gets the credit for that. So, what's he like as an individual? I think the two words that I suppose people use critically of him are that he is selfish or self-absorbed, and that he's quite, he can be quite intimidating. It's strange. His t those two facets of his personality, in many ways, they are his strengths. I mean, I worked with Nick for th for fifteen years, and I think that even after five years, say, of working with him, he could he could have walked past me on a golf course during a golf tournament, and for, frankly, he did once. He walked straight past me. I was looking at him. It's as if he was looking through me. I, I didn't really exist. And part of what I'm saying is that part of his selfishness was he was so focused on what he was doing that that he would it it, it was about him for sure and, and you know people can be critical of the fact that that somebody is so focused and so i don't want to i don't want to play social golf with you i i, I just want to go out and win six majors and become world number one he, you know he he achieved it and his 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 focus his incredible focus and selfishness if you like it the end product was six major championships, and I think it's it's fair to say that that if he if he was selfish, he's less selfish now, uh, in the sense that he's not pursuing six major championships anymore. But he is still with a passion pursuing his television career. He's pursuing. Uh, he's still passionate, I know, about about the Faldo series. So I, I, what I'm saying is, in terms of the the, the 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 selfishness criticism of him, I think I think when you break it down. It's, it's it's an extraordinary level of focus. His intimidation and people say that that he's um, very uh, difficult to approach. I, I I would he is into if he walks in a room now. I worked with him for fifteen years. If he walks in a room where I am, I'm probably more feeling intimidated than if Tiger Woods walked in, who I've never met. <laughs> I worked with him for fifteen years. He's six. He he's is, six three, isn't he? He's a big big guy. Yeah. No, I think he's six four. I, I, um, it be, because he stands like a guardsman he's 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 still in my opinion six foot four 
and broad and physically intimidating and he doesn't naturally smile when he walks in a room that's that's just the way people are you know some people some people are always smiling some people are rarely smiling Mick doesn't naturally smile when he walks in a room so he walks in a room he's physically intimidating he's not Mr Bon Vivert certainly not initially and therefore people are intimidated by him and but I can tell you I've, I've been at dinner tables with Mick Fowler and 12 people and Nick is absolutely head hosting the dinner chatting he's a great mimic he he can be absolutely Mr Party Animal he is without question the most unique individual I've ever met and it's difficult sometimes to feel comfortable in his company because of the the, the two things I said sometimes you don't think he thinks you think it's all about him this is his kind of focus and there is that intimidation factor as well which is partly physical partly you know you're in the room with a six-time major winner who has a reputation so what i can say is he's an incredibly honest person and he's a person that you know he was a stickler for the golf rules i think he's a stickler for rules in life there's there's things you don't do and there's things you do do and he's very much his own man and so it doesn't make him you know the most lovable person to most people but um i just feel a, a privilege to to gosh as somebody who loves golf to work 15 years with britain's greatest ever golfer yeah i feel fortunate i think just in summing up what you said there you know perhaps the man the intimidator the guy who's considered selfish without having those character traits you wonder if that begets six opens or six majors should i say no, I don't think so, because he would have had to make himself a different person. Um, and he, one thing I a comment I think that's quite important, he got, an, as you know, an awful lot of stick. You could say partly justified, especially if you're in the media, for his getting up at the Open Championship and singing, I did it my way. I'm sure you, you, you're familiar with that. He's saying, I did it my way. Yeah. Um, People said it wasn't the appropriate place. It wasn't. It, it, it was all about him. It was all of those sorts of things. But you know, Nick had had a difficult time with the press, and he did do it his way. I mean, that, that, that's what I'm saying. That that he achieved what he's achieved, not just his six his six major victories, but this creation of the Faldo series and the fact that he has then, after golf gone on, had his other career as broadcasting and and throwing the sign. You know, he has done it his way. And when you think about his relatively humble beginnings, what he's achieved in life, I think he's in... Uh, and he wouldn't have achieved them had he not done it his way. So he just felt it was, you know... <laughs> the point he made was fair. I know, no, for sure. And if you think about the... You know, as you say, his humble beginnings in Welling Garden City, and I think he only took the game up at fifteen or sixteen. I mean, like what he what he accomplished in terms of fast tracking, and you know, obviously success with his natural swing, then completely re-engineering the swing with with Ledbetter, and and going on to to essentially be a machine. You know, and actually, it's funny that you mentioned the word intimidation. I think he intimidated the crap out of Greg Norman. Totally. Totally. I mean, that's an example of his extraordinary focus, his extraordinary dedication, his extraordinary aura, though, that, that he absolutely intimidated, you know, one, one of the greatest golfers of all time, Greg Norman. I, I think, but for Nick Faldo 
uh, intimidating Greg Norman. Greg Norman would certainly have won a, a, another two or three majors. And, and yeah, to, if you can intimidate Greg Norman, you're a remarkable individual. Huh? You certainly are. And I think Sharky, <laughs> Sharky probably every now and then wakes up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat <laughs> thinking about Greg, thinking about Nick. Thinking about Nick Fowler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. coming to get me yeah. <laughs> behind you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, that's how it seemed. It, yeah, yeah. It, it's 1996 in particular. No, for sure. You know, you mentioned that you were, uh, you know, when you worked with Nick in Fowler Design that you were responsible for winning new business and pitching and, and contracts and that sort of stuff. What were the component parts to a file design pitch that you remember? I developed the, 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 the mantra, strategy and memorability. If you take strategy, I always felt it was important to, within file design, to try and reflect the strengths of Nick Falder, therefore, he, the way he played golf in particular, this incredibly strategic approach to plotting your way around a golf course and unraveling its mysteries. Um, his, his attention to detail, his focus, those elements that if I were a client, I would want somebody who has this level of attention to detail, uh, but also the debt and the dedication that goes with that, but, but also strong strategic skills because the best golf courses we know have lots of strategy um so i would i would certainly focus on nick's personal traits that 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 were reflected in the in the, his company in Fowler design because i felt they were very strong strong traits but i would also emphasize the fact that of course we work with very good architects um and that we didn't just work with our own in-house team who were very good but we we occasionally work with would partner with um whether it was whether it was the best architects for instance in australia we worked on a project with tony cashmore who was who, who i'd got to know very well who was a very very good architect and good to work with that was uh so, thir 13 peach yeah absolutely yeah mm -hmm. yes and and then you could then you could throw in uh katamaya dunes in in cairo where we worked with brian curley a brilliantly talented architect Steve Smyers is another person I've mentioned before. He was on that helicopter going in, into Valley Liffin. It was partly my job to create good relationships with the architects, but these are architects, obviously, that Nick was comfortable with and, and in tune with. You wanted a client to, to believe that you're going to get great architecture. You're also going to get the value and input from Nick Faldo and what was unique about Nick Faldo. And there were, in terms of Nick's record and what he achieved in the game, there were few of the right age and appeal uh, than Nick Valdo's. So you, you put together what you felt were the strengths. And as I say, then my job was then to, if you like, to charm the, to try and charm the client into into feeling comfortable with Valdo design and feeling comfortable that they would get a great golf course and that they would get input from Nick Valdo. I listened to a thing about golf podcast recently where uh, the great Rod Murray interviewed the Australian golf course designer Bob Harrison. Part of the conversation covered Greg Coffey's initial approach to Bob in exploring where they'd be interested in working on the Ard Finn project in the remote Hebridean island of Jura off the Scottish west coast. Mm -hmm. Coffey initially left a voicemail message for Harrison, which actually on first listening, Harrison thought one of his mates was taking the piss out of him. Um, following along the lines, uh, it's Greg Coffey here, Bob. I was looking at the design credit for Elliston in uh, 
in New South Wales in the um, the Hunter Valley, and I see it's listed mm. as a Norman and Harrison course. I'm not much of a a, a golf architecture geek however i'm pretty sure that sharky didn't design the golf course which must mean you did during the course of your time with falda design the company obviously worked with course designers as you mentioned such as guy hockley paul jansen and steve smyers typically how much involvement would nick have had on projects through their development cycles guy hockley paul ja- and paul jansen were both uh, initially employed by falda design so they were the in-house team if you like um both tremendous, tremendous architects, in my opinion. Uh, again, get, let's go back to what we said about we never pretended that Nick was the architect. So, um, uh, sorry, I'm trying to get the, the what was your what was your question again? Sorry, it was, just it was, yeah, just typically how much involvement would Nick oh, ha- have yeah, through sure. through the development okay. cycle of projects? No, absolutely. So again, starting with the preface that we didn't pretend that Nick was the architect. So. What would Nick's input be? Well, on the design side, I don't. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure that anyone understands strategy. Uh, uh, the golf course strategy, playing a, how to play a golf course, uh, more than Nick. He certainly could input strategic knowledge, discuss that with with his architects. Uh, he would always tour a property before the golf course was built but he, but again we didn't pretend he did the, the, the routing or routing as the Americans like to say of the golf course his input really was on the in the once the writing had been done his input and his strategic input but his his thoughts about hazards his thoughts about the grip that you know the, the green complexes uh, and you know even teeing positions he would he would have an input on every hole he would he would certainly walk the site before construction walk the routing that had been done as i say or suggested by his architect and he might make some he might make some changes to the routing but fundamentally he was looking he was he was really does have strong visualization skills and he would he would look at he would look at a piece of this is the architect would say this is hole four <laughs> and you know to be honest if i was there i i, I couldn't visualize hole four uh, and I'd seen enough golf courses around the world, but Nick could Nick could visualise it, and Nick Nick would certainly have, if the architect had had thoughts on bunkering, you know, maybe at a later stage, he would say, no, no, no that's not going to work. This this is where you should place the bunkers. This is, he would often say, yeah, people don't like that kind of shot, or people, what intimidates somebody would be would be putting this hazard here or whatever. So. He would he would have input into each individual hole. I mean, Bally, if you take talking about mentioning Guy, uh, Guy Hockley just now, Guy Hockley was the architect responsible for uh, the renovation of the old links at Bally Lifford, which we which we've touched on. Bally Lifford is the most amazing natural golf course I've ever seen, and I suspect Nick has never seen has ever seen. But what Bally Lifford lacked when he played there. The bunkers were, t- were were awful. They're incredibly rudimentary. They, they they weren't constructed properly, but they also they were in there weren't that many, and they were in terrible places. Uh, when Nick, I remember him walking walking all eighteen with Guy Hockley, and Guy had his you know his notebook open, and Nick was saying this is where, which you know, and it was a collaboration, of course, but Nick was Nick was suggesting where these is we completely rebunkered the golf course we altered a few teeing positions only really changed one or two holes but it absolutely revolutionized because the bunkers were beautifully constructed pop bunkers 
uh, and they were very well placed following the input of, of, of Nick and the architect. So, and in my opinion, that took the, the ballet if in old links to another level, a level that's good enough to uh, be hosting significant championships now. So, and Nick's input to that, as in it, as in all projects, was was I believe very significant. It's just just never pretend it was it was it was a contribution that it wasn't. And I think that's where that's why you get people saying, "Oh, Greg Norman never went near this," or or whatever. I, I suspect he did go near it. But I, I don't. I, I think the confusion comes because, of course, the client wants it to be called Greg Norman Design or Nick Fowler Design. That's why he's he's paying a premium uh, because of the marketing aspects of that. But 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 in the same way that when you go to a, go shopping in Sainsbury's, you don't meet Sir Peter Sainsbury's. What you're going into Sainsbury's and buying uh, are, are goods that presumably Sainsbury's have created a certain level of product a certain type of product and that's when you go into a shop with a name on it you don't have to meet the, the man himself or the, pe the person themselves but it's about your 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 buying a certain type of product that hopefully is built to a high standard with a lot of personal input and 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 distinctiveness I, you know i always think go back to that mantra strategy and memorability Nick Fowler used to talk a lot about the wow factor. And, and and I know to him that meant you stand on a golf hole and you go, you literally go, wow. But that's because it has been it has been properly conceived and created. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously an opportunity just to give Ballyliffin and, and the old particularly a, a bit of a bit of exposure. Uh, you rightly pointed out the uh, RNA recently announced that the 2024 Amateur Championship very excitingly will be held in Ballyduffin Golf Club in County Donegal. For those that aren't aware, in 2022, the whole count at Ballyduffin extends to 45 holes, with two 18s in the old and the glass sheety, uh, and of course the relatively recent open pollen short course. The formal history of Ballyduffin Golf Club stretches back to the early 1940s, albeit in a, at a different site. From the early 1970s, Eddie Hackett, Frank Pennock, Charles Laurie and a modicum of Pat Ruddy all influenced the developmental direction of the original old course. George Waters from the USGA was a recent guest on the pod and in his book Sand and Golf he speaks about the washboard effect that is often in evidence in sand-based sites. You alluded to it earlier on. Even though it's some 18 years since I last played the old course I can still actually visualize the micro contours that pervade and tumble towards the seaward portion of the Ballyliffin site, acting as a counterpoint to the flatter fairway finish that characterizes the shaping of the glass sheety. You, I have a question here, which you've actually preempted the answer, so we'll, we'll just sashay nicely on to Loch Erne, actually, which is another development in Ireland that, that Faldo, uh, Faldo Design worked on. A Fermanagh-born, Dublin-based grocer called Jim Tracy initially developed the Castle Hume Golf Club just outside of Enniskillen in County Fermanagh towards the end of the 1990s. Some 10 years later, in, 19, sorry, in 2009, the Lockern Golf Resort would open, having been lovingly created by the Falda design team on the banks of both Castle Hume Lock and Lower Lockern. A fresh-faced Rory McElroy would in fact be the resort's first touring pro, and the Locker and Logo would adorn his Oakley polo shirt when he won his first major at the US Open at Congressional in 2011. The resort's opening in 2009 would see an exhibition match between McElroy and Harrington, 
with many of the great and good of Northern Irish society in attendance. I remember particularly a tipsy Jimmy Nesbitt on the final grain as MC, and indeed my aforementioned colleague Johnny Packham being completely oblivious as to who Arlene Foster, the then Minister for Enterprise and Investment and subsequent First Minister was. What are your recollections of the Locker Urn project? Well, I, I do go back to the beginning of that project in the sense that I was at a meeting with Jim Tracy and uh, one of his business partners at the Kempinski Hotel in in Marbella uh, back in the, uh, I believe, the early, very early 2000s. He had a, a dream. Jim was a visionary who had a dream of creating a, a spectacular golf course on what he described as an amazing piece of land in County Fermanagh at Loch Erne. I had been contacted by his business partner who had connections in golf, contacted me because they were interested in discussing the possibility of, of Loch Erne being a Fowler design project and Fowler design the golf course. So uh, I happened to be in Spain at a week when uh, Jim and his part, business partner were, were in Spain. We met. He, I was shown images of the site, which straight away I could see was was well, but potentially very spectacular. Loch Erne in, in in well, anybody who knows Loch Erne in that area knows that it's um, it, it's pretty special. So it wasn't an area of Ireland I particularly uh, knew at the time, but I could just see it was it was a very interesting site. And Jim was, as I've said, a visionary and had this incredible dream. Anyway, I then went and saw the site. And uh, it was every bit as spectacular as the pictures suggested. But Jim, Jim didn't own all of the land at the time. It was it was uh, like, like a lot of land in Ireland. It, there were various owners who had interests in it. And um, what well, we wanted certainly wanted to do the project. We wanted to help Jim secure the land. And that's why I say I was involved at the beginning. Certainly, when our when our golf architect saw it, when Nick Fowler first saw it, we were we were very keen uh, on the project happening. And kind of long story short, the project did happen. Guy Hockley again was the architect on that project, and I think Lochan is possibly due to its location is underrated. I think it's an extremely good golf course, certainly one of the best that Fowler Design created, and. It was sad that, as you mentioned, it opened in 2009 and the original owner uh, lost the lost the property following the 2008 crash. And fortunately, from, uh, I guess, both the Fowler Design perspective, although I, I left Fowler Design in 2012, I know they still have a relationship with Lockern, the new owners of Lockern, and I, for different reasons, have a very good and strong relationship with Lockern. So... Lochairn, uh, perhaps not quite to the extent of Ballyliffin, but Lochairn has played a part in various parts of my life. And I'm not sure if you've been there, but I, but, you know, I do think it's a very special place. No, I have. Johnny Packham has dragged me kicking and screaming. Not quite kicking and screaming, but no, we played, myself and Johnny played the day after the opening. And I played once or twice subsequently. And always a great day out. As a Lynx junkie, 
I would certainly give it the thumbs up in terms of, you know, if you haven't played it, you, you have to have it on your list. You know, some great topographical change. You know, there's a couple of distinct and different areas to the golf course. Obviously, Lakeside, some 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 higher ground, so that par 5 that sort of cascades over the top of the hill, and then the, the short par 4 down to, well, relatively short par 4, it was 3 to 370, which McEnroy flew all the way to the green. If uh, if memory serves during the, during the, uh, the official opening, but uh, but certainly would 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 wholeheartedly uh, endorse anybody's uh, decision to uh, to put uh, Lockern on their either uh, inbound itinerary or staycation itinerary. One hundred percent. Maybe we can look at a project that didn't quite get off the ground. I will include a link in the show notes to a scratch TV piece that was done uh, with Nick a number of years ago, but. We might look at Bartra Island, which is an island located off the coast of Kenny Mayo in Kalala Bay. The island can, in fact, be seen from the vantage point of a number of the estuarine holes at Enniscrown. I understand that Nick owned the island circa 2003 to 2020 and was very keen to build a Lynx golf course on the 1.9 square kilometre island. Unfortunately, it never materialised. However, it's a very interesting story that perhaps you can give us a brief introduction to yeah i guess with running any golf course design company you you remember the ones that got away or didn't happen you know every bit as much as the ones that did happen because for every every great potential project there's probably two or three that for various reasons didn't happen or didn't didn't finally open in 2008 of course i think the 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 results of 2008 and what happened to the golf course design industry probably greatly influenced the fact that I didn't continue beyond 2012 in that. The, the world of golf kind of was changed after, after the 2008. And and that, that also played a role in, I've mentioned in Lockheran obviously, but it also played a, uh, in, a role in Bartra. So Bartra was a site that, that uh, goes back to 1997, the, the island, the year I started working with Falder Design, we were shown images of this site in, in as you rightly say, in Kalala Bay in County Mayo, which was an island of, of Duneland. And the idea of creating a Lynx course on an island uh, and a Lynx course with some extraordinary dunes and, 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 and vistas. Um, you mentioned Ennis Grown, you can, you can, you can see the island or part of the island from from Enniscrone, that part of Enniscrone that is very spectacular. Uh, Enniscrone, there are there's some wonderful golf holes. I'm sure you're familiar with in the dunes at Enniscrone. And you look out and you can see uh, Bartra Island. The idea of, if you like, taking the best of Enniscrone and, and having that having that experience on an island with 360 degree views was just in, in, well. A dream golf course, and I know Nick Fowler, who, who's been on that island many times. You're right; he wasn't the owner; he was a co-owner. 50-50 situation with an Irish consortium. It was there was a UK-based consortium of which Nick Fowler headed up, if you like, and, a, and a, an Irish consortium that owned the island. There was a long history as to how that island became owned. Nick fell in love with it, having seen it. Was introduced it by by somebody who didn't end up being the owner. It was it was a very complicated. Uh, it has a very complicated background 
as to how Nick did acquire the island, which would take me three podcasts to explain. Um, he ended up co-owning it. His dream, and to some extent, the, the dream of the co-owners was to create this extraordinary island Lynx golf course. Now, I think the main reason it didn't happen apart from, well, there are, no, sorry, there are a number of reasons, but maybe the main reason is that the the, the UK ownership and the Irish ownership couldn't quite agree on how to take the project forward and how much this was going to be a, a, a pure golf course as opposed to part of a, a, a development, should we say. Um, the sides couldn't agree. One of the, the principal co-owner on the Irish side unfortunately died suddenly and that threw everything, everything into disarray. 2008 came along so the plans didn't happen but but uh, i think as you well know whether it could actually have got built with the the fact that it was most of the island was subject to a special area of conservation order the 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 the, the, the challenges in building a links course uh on that not totally pristine doomland you know our view was always that by actually managing that system we could we could create a, a, a better SAC, if you like. There would have been restrictions on how the golf course was built. I think that's true. I'm not totally sure how. I, I know uh, my understanding is that the Bartra has now been bought by somebody else. So it was obviously found to be impossible to take any kind of golf development forward. I don't know who now owns it. I do know, I, I believe it would have made yeah an, an, an incredible golf course but a challenging one to create because again not just because of the likely restrictions that the the environmentalists would have put on it but also the fact that it was on an island and how to access it would have been a challenge but if you you know had it had it happened uh, to have Enniscrown, Bartra Island and Khan in and, and and Ross's point not that far away I think that would have taken golf in the northwest of Ireland to another level. Strand Hill, we can very, very. Strand Hill, I, I know Strand Hill, very, very good golf course as well. Absolutely, the, the underrated links course. But, but it would have, it would have had. I mean, the northwest of Ireland has got a lot to shout about anyway, um, because the courses I've just mentioned, and then further up, of course, is Donegal, uh, with all that's been happening there from Ballyliffin to Rossapenna, etc., and Merver and Port Salon, you name it. It's Northwest of Ireland has got an awful lot. Bartra could have added a, a, a pretty special dimension to it. So it, along with a few others, are, are, are in that bracket of the ones that got away. And, and fortunately, there were a few that we did, we, 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 you know, that we were able to accomplish. Sure, I think it's probably useful just to uh, for our maybe our international listeners that may probably don't quite know the European environmental legislative situation quite as well as perhaps yourself and myself our rudimentary knowledge of it anyway nick it's probably useful just to mention the sac which differs from the uk designation of sssi i believe uh, and in fact one of the reasons why the uk historically has been able to develop the likes of dundonald and trump's place up in aberdeen because they actually got a derogation from uh, the sac regulations or directive directors if you like from from europe when you were when you were in europe but it's probably useful to, I guess, counterpoint the Bartra project, perhaps with Inch Strand, which is in County Kerry. So one of the best, as as yet, undeveloped 
potential Dunlin sites for golf in Ireland can be found at Inch Strand in County Kerry. And for many years, the brother of the former Deputy Prime Minister, a guy called Arthur Spring, who um, was a, a golf course architect in his own right, endeavoured to gain permission to develop the, the Inch Strand site into a golf golf course. It's located between Killarney and Duke's Golf Club, if people know the, the Kerry uh, geography. I believe actually so wonderful is the site and it was actually historically the site of a former golf club I believe or golf course. I believe that Band and Dunes developer Mike Kaiser was involved in some stage. Alas due, due to that aforementioned special area of conservation which is essentially a, a preservation order if you like of that Macker, uh, Linksland environment if you like which is obviously pretty much unique to Ireland and and the UK we would obviously a little bit in Denmark a little bit in 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 the Netherlands that's about it maybe a little bit in Belgium as well but um I guess just going back to to SAC anyway and and an inch strand obviously due to the SAC environmental designation the plans never gain widespread traction despite the the the, the main protagonist being uh, well got and well connected in political terms I, I understand as I said that Bartra also held one of these special areas of conservation designations both for the dunes and actually I think it was a a location for breeding seabirds obviously <laughs> The SAC designation, while not completely precluding the possibility of development, basically puts a hell of a lot of roadblocks in place of, of any, any likely developments. So I guess it's it's unfortunate, and these things happen, I'm sure, as potential golf course builders that, you know, you, you need, if you throw enough stuff at the wall, something's going to stick, but some of, it, some of it just doesn't stick. I think with the SAC designation, it was probably unlikely that Barter would have would have got the the go ahead i guess we're never going to know but i think another one of the issues was access was was a bit of a bit of an issue was that is that right in terms of how you actually get paying guests and staff members and 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 the team actually on the island no that's right but um i think i i think we had potential solution to accessing the island so and i, and I think yeah, I think the SACs would have been extremely difficult. The SAC would have been extremely difficult to get around. But one of the exceptions—that's not the right answer. But if, if you address, it's a matter of public interest and things like employment come into it. There are—I'm not saying there are ways around it. There are ways of maybe working with it. But but at the end of the day, we didn't get that far down the route. So I I don't know whether ultimately a golf course of that we'd be happy with could have got built on that island and, and I, I don't think we'll ever know. Two final questions just in relation to the uh, the Fowler Design gig. Yeah. Obviously you've alluded to it previously in relation to that wow factor but mm. a great site is obviously always preferable to a not so great site. What site or sites jumped off the page to you in terms of mm. on, on first view in relation to the, the, well. the, 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 the site you worked on with Fowler Design? I suppose some of some of the sites we either worked on initially, project couldn't get completed for whatever reason. There's there's probably more of those than sites that did get completed. So, I mean, we mentioned yeah, Bartra Island is obviously is probably top of that list. But then there was there was an incredible links site with black sand in Iceland that um, we were hopeful of of being able to create a 
well, totally unique golf course, a Lynx course with black sand in Iceland. Um, might have put in the photos and links in the shade. It was owned by an Icelandic bank. And if you remember what happened in 2008, you understand why that didn't go forward. Um, the arse fell out of the Iceland economy and any of the... Totally. The first one to go. Primary and secondary bondholders were burned. It sounds like you were one of them. <laughs> no, I wasn't, um, but no. A, a memory like um, an elephant. Uh, there you go. Um, well, it, yeah. I, anyway, that 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 killed killed that project. But you know, maybe 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 in another life, um, that's a that's a project I I would love to love to reactivate. Um, imagine imagine amazing amazing golf with the Northern Lights element to it. So that's what the photon is, I suppose you could say. But this was Linksland. Anyway, Iceland, uh, there was an incredible site. I remember in, in South Africa, Uruguay, there was a piece of land that was like, you could have been on the Melbourne sand belt in Uruguay. I remember we had a project in re close to Rio de Janeiro. These are ones that ultimately didn't happen. But, uh, you know, all around the world, we looked at, we looked at some pretty incredible sites. But, but we were fortunate to, to, to finish golf course projects in, in, in all six continents. So, um, wow factor. I, I do think Loch Aaron has, has a huge wow factor. There's a, there's a project we did in Denmark that doesn't seem to get, um, perhaps the credit it should called Ledrable Palace that, that's, a, that's on a pretty exceptional piece of land in America. I know we, we, we did a project called Cottonwood Hills, which is quite close to Prairie Dunes, similar terrain to Prairie Dunes. So very sandy site. In, in the US, a wow factor, certainly the site at Shadow Ridge, which was a Marriott project, uh, Marriott USA project. Uh, Nick Faldo had, had a relationship with with, uh, with Marriott Golf Institutes, the Faldo Golf Institute by Marriott, which was very successful. And that led to two golf projects, one in Palm Desert uh, and one near Phoenix, sort of, well, desert courses. Uh, and... If you've ever been to Palm Springs, the backdrops there of, of the of the mountains is is pretty exceptional. So that course certainly has wow factor. We we finished one in the Dominican Republic as well, uh, Rocco Key it was called. Uh, I'm not sure if the, how the project is financially, but it it opened and that golf course had 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 a golf hole that was, I believe, as as spectacular as the 16th at Cypress Point or. or um, a, a, a couple of the the, the ones in, in is it Cabot um, what is it in the tip of the Baja Peninsula in Mexico there's there's some there's some stunning golf holes around the world that, that on, on promontories that, that, that jut out into the ocean taking the seventh at Pebble Beach to a, to a more dramatic level if you like Anyway, Roko in the Dominican Republic has a golf hole and, and several spectacular golf holes. There's one I should mention in Vietnam that I think has got a lot of wow factor. It's called Laguna Lanco, which was the architect who worked with Nick Faldo on that. Very good, another very good friend called Paul Jansen, brilliant architect who created a course with with a number of different environments. Again, with a dramatic backdrop and right alongside the ocean called Laguna Lanco. You, you, you look that one up, that's got plenty of wow factor. You know, absolutely. And look, the climate obviously pays the bills. However, I'm sure some are easier to de deal with than others. 
what client, if there's one client out there that stands out in terms of being perhaps low maintenance and maybe even verging on knowing what they don't know? Knowing what they don't know is important. In other words, uh, that trusting you with the project. Not not always easy because, because especially if it's an individual who has a dream, like a Jim Tracy or um, the the owner of 13th Beach, who want, who was quite personally involved, had his own ideas, but but as the architect and designer of the golf course, you you want to have as much freedom as you can, whilst respecting the vision of uh, the, the 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 founder or the owner of the course. I suppose the 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 client that was most easy to deal with. And incredibly professional. Where where Marriott Golf? I, I told you we did two projects in 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 the US with with Marriott Golf. They they just a just a bit like Troon Golf are now, in my opinion, extremely well organised uh, and very professional in what they do. And they were they, they were not only easy to work with as a client, but they, they, their input was that they, they knew what input um they could provide and they knew what input you could provide and they were they seem to be very good at knowing the difference um so they stand out as clients and and i i would just say in terms of 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 the architects when we partnered with a different firm to create a project it was obviously really important that that they could share a vision with Val the designer and particularly with nick Fowler as to what they were creating and Steve Smyers and Brian Curley, and then when Paul Janssen went on his own, were great people to work with as architects. I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll fly a flag for them if you like, because uh, I think they do do great work and, and were very easy, come come very just positive vibes to work with. Yeah, look, we're we're getting up to recent times. You alluded to the fact that you went on a trip to uh, the Himalayas when you finished up at mm. Father Design, mm. which I believe was a Millen Cancer Trust fundraising uh, trip. Yeah. Perhaps you can tell us what transpired post-trip yeah. and the adventures you have been on both with your own health and um, obviously the quest that you have been on for the greater part of the last five or six years. Mm. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I... Um as we've discussed, I spent 15 years with Father Design, and it was literally to the day, May the 1st, 2012, that I felt I wanted a, a fresh challenge. Uh, and also, I, you know, I, I felt that the, the, the golf course design world, especially if you work with a, with a big name, was heading in a different and difficult direction. And, and the number of, of new golf courses with a signature player that's designed has dropped dramatically since 2008. But, but I, th I think more than that, more than the fact that I felt it was it was a, a, a difficult business to be in going forward, I wanted a fresh challenge. And fifteen years literally to the day seemed a good, very good number. And so, but I wasn't. Sure. I was in my early fifties then, and I and I wanted this one more challenge in golf, if you like. But I wasn't sure what it was going to be. And whilst I was deliberating, if you like, I went on a trek in the Himalayas, as you mentioned, organised by Macmillan Cancer Support, which are a wonderful. UK-based charity, um, Macmillan nurses are famous the world over. There were 50 people in the Himalayas, all walking, raising funds. Half the people didn't have a cancer connection, including me. Nobody in my close family 
had cancer and I certainly hadn't had cancer, but the other half of the people were uh, walking for a cause and it was very inspirational trek. I happened to meet the head of fundraising for Macmillan on the walk who was interested, it was a golfer. Uh, she was interested in my golf background and I was interested in what Macmillan did increasingly. As a result of that trip anyway, uh, I, I, I promised the lady at Macmillan, look, if I can find a way to link my golf contacts with what you do in fighting cancer, I'll try and come back to you with an idea. And, you know, a, month, a few months go by, as it were. And I kept thinking, Macmillan talk a lot about the number four, uh, about how there are four million people in the UK at the moment living with cancer and four stages of cancer. And, well, I knew that four was a big big number in golf for, for, for lots of reasons, whether it's four balls, four thumbs, four major championships, even shouting four um, uh, when you lose your ball. Uh, so I just thought if I could use this number four uh, uh, in connection with some kind of um, means to fight cancer. And so anyway, I came up with the idea thinking there are two and a half thousand golf courses in the UK, all with the number, all with a fourth hole. How about we create a message on the flag, a message like golf for Macmillan or something like that. And to me, a flag seems such a, such a good method of communication because if you think of all the sports in the world, golf is by far the one most capable of flying the flag for a cause. Flags tend to be around the periphery of, of a sporting arena, whereas with golf, you stand on the tee and it, very importantly, it's your goal, it's your target, and you interact with the flag. So I thought if we could put a message on the flag, that would be a great start. And to cut a long story short, Macmillan liked the idea very much, I didn't go forward with it at the time because I really questioned whether I was a, a, a good or the, an appropriate campaign and not having had cancer. Um, I could just imagine sitting down with a golf club and understandably them thinking, well, kind of why are you pushing this idea of a special four on a flag? You've not had cancer. So anyway, then I, then I went down with my first cancer. As a result of that, the period where I was recovering, uh, a number of people had said, what a great idea, this idea of a four on a flag uh, camp with the cancer message, but why Why just do it in the UK? And well, of course the answer was because because of how, how it, had, it had started this idea, but there might be two and a half thousand golf courses in the UK, but of course, there, well, there are 36,000 golf courses around the world. And they're not just two or three million golfers, there are 60 million golfers. And, well, if one, in four, if, if one in four of them is affected by cancer, that's, that's uh, um, a potentially huge audience that you might want to engage with. And so as I'm recovering, this idea of global golf for cancer emerged. And that's the message that goes on the fourth hole of golf, of a number of golf courses, increasingly a number of golf courses around the world. Uh, it's, it's golf is such a global sport. Cancer sadly is such a global disease. Global golf for cancer makes sense. A golf course flying the flag for a cause makes sense. And so the last five years I've spent building this campaign to get the goal, essentially the goal of the camp of the campaign. If you, if you get it down to its essence is to get the golf community doing more to help fight cancer. And in all its forms, uh, as, as I say, I mean, it's not just a, a question of fighting say breast cancer or, or supporting cancer research. It's about, there's so many forms of cancer. I've now had cancer four times as this 
as this campaign has developed, uh, my form of cancer is, is it's not that well known. It's called head and neck cancer. Uh, but the idea of the campaign is, is to support support all of those people. I, I always say the flag flies in honor of anyone who's battling cancer, but it's also flying to, uh, in support of all those organizations that are fighting cancer. And that can mean fighting breast cancer, fighting childhood cancer, helping support support the same, support um, those fighting brain cancer. And, and that, well, that's led to a further association with the, the, the SEVI Foundation. SEVI, of course, sadly dying of brain cancer. But it's about cancer. It, it's about fighting cancer in all its forms and all around the world. And so golf, fortunately, being a global sport, there are iconic golf courses around the world. And, and if, you're, if you're trying to build a golfing story, to be able to fly your flag for your story at some of the most iconic courses in the world is a, is a great way of getting the golf community to engage. So to cut a very long story short, what a goal of the campaign is, is by this time next year, 400 of the most iconic courses around the world on all the six continents will be flying this flag on special occasions, special dates, for uh, flying the flag for cancer fighters worldwide and that includes for instance all 14 open courses that stage the open championship and some whether it's the rio olympic course durban country club i'm just throwing names out it's the flag is thrown at pebble beach and at pinehurst some iconic courses that help develop the story and certainly getting the golfing community engaged there's so many things that the golfing community can do to fight cancer. And it's not just flying at golf clubs, it's now increasingly flying during golf events. The Euro Pro Tour, for instance, this year flying the flag on their fourth hole at every every event. So it's it's increasing awareness and the purpose of the campaign is is ultimately to become significant in fundraising, but you don't get to the fundraising unless you've created a, a, a strong story and platform. And in a way, that's where I am with the campaign at the moment building the platform, building the awareness so that we have a uh, something sig very substantial, if you like, um, at substantial places or significant places and events that can act as this catalyst for fundraising doing various events around the world. Well, I'm pleased to report that our Captain's Day at Royal Dublin was recently, actually last Saturday week, and lo and behold, the global golf for cancer flag was flying on the fourth very proudly flapping in the breeze as i uh, <laughs> as i i think i made a bogey uh, it wasn't a great day it was a good no, sorry it was a great day but it wasn't a great score let's put it that way but okay. maybe just to bring you back to where it all started from a, a launch perspective i believe mm. that was march 2017 and you launched the global golf for cancer initiative with an epic 2000 kilometer walk along the atlantic coast of ireland utilizing mm -hmm. the wild atlantic way playing the fourth hole at the 40 courses you passed along the route and then flying the global golf for cancer flag obviously at the fourth hole your walk started to ballyliffin no surprise there in county Donegal, and finished at old head in county cork you've since been back to extend your reach around the north and east coast of the island jesus a 2000 kilometer walk for starters you don't do things by half no well i want i wanted an impactful launch um I'm, as i say I, I think i alluded to this i do believe that the story stories create the awareness and the awareness leads to action and support that's one of my one of my mantras uh to launch in an impactful way 
sure, I suppose I didn't have to walk 2,000 kilometres with a golf bag on my back. The idea did start that I would visit 40 golf clubs and on the on the wonderful west coast of Ireland, present them with a flag, and then one day I woke up with this idea of walking towards the flag. And so, as somebody who doesn't hadn't done much walking before, the idea of doing 2,000 kilometres was a bit daunting. But uh, but um, it took four months. I did it in two stages, so 1,000 kilometres. Actually, I know you said it started in Ballylifin. That was the first golf club to fly the flag, but the walk started, I felt, had to start at Malin Head. Thank you, pardon, was, just, up, just, just up the road. Just up the road. So it was Malin Head to Old Head, so the length of Ireland via, as you say, 2,000 kilometres, 2,000 kilometres of the Wild Atlantic Way, which, because 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 of the coast of Ireland is is not exactly a straight line, should we say it? It that's why it was two thousand kilometres. I paused in the summer because my first cancer situation, indeed, I've, I've mentioned I have I've had cancer four times, had a neck cancer four times. It's all related to sun damage. So to go further on that, being a fair-skinned person who didn't like much of my generation cover up with proper sun protection. My top of my head basically got a lot of damage when I was young. It didn't. It, it was late. It didn't appear until my fifties. But anyway, I got my first head and neck cancer. As as I say, I didn't want to um, walk in the summer of two thousand seventeen. So I was going to complete the walk, the second thousand kilometres, autumn two thousand and seventeen. Get to old head. I didn't do it until the spring because I had my second, more serious bout of cancer, which cost me a completely new scalp in autumn of 2017 but i did finish the walk in spring 2018 i then did it i decided during that walk how i was going to develop ideas for developing this campaign to make it global and i thought well i will do four walks to launch it so of course the next walk had to be at the home of so-called home of golf so uh, i walked from turnbury to dornick via st andrews and that enabled doing the same thing playing the fourth hole carrying my golf clubs that did enable me to um visit all the open championship courses in scotland subsequently i have visited them all as i say in in, in the rest of the uk and ireland i then did a third walk around northern ireland actually specifically because the uh, the open championship was returning to northern ireland at port rush so in 2019 i went from loch Erne, which we've mentioned before headed up towards the coast and went along the wonderful causeway coast which included royal port rush and port stewart and castle rock and i finished an iconic fourth hole again all about stories so to play the fourth hole at royal county down was ex- and finish the walk there was very special fourth walk I, I, because of covid only happened last november december and that was along the camino in northern spain but whilst doing these four walks and actually battling with cancer four times because the fourth cancer occurred in summer 2019, which unfortunately cost me my left eyesight. But in addition to completing the walks, I made it a goal to get the flag on every continent by the end of 2019, which I managed to do by getting to South America and Australia towards the end of 2019. I'm glad I did it, particularly given that COVID came along in 2020. Uh, So uh, I'm glad I had the the courage and bloody mindedness to to not let losing my eyesight in summer 19 put the campaign on hold i did i did go to south america to to rio to 
to Buenos Aires, to Santiago, to Montevideo, and then flying the flag at four four great courses in each country, uh, and then getting to, to Australia just to initially introduce the campaign. So I visited Royal Melbourne, Kingston Heath, and then two extraordinary places in Tasmania around the time of the President's Cup. Uh, so I got back Christmas 19, and then, of course, along came COVID, but that enabled me to develop the course in the UK. That was the only place I could I could do it because I couldn't even fly to Ireland until 2021. And But I have picked the campaign up again towards the end of 2021. I went to Canada in 2021 and and then did the Camino walk. And I've this year I've been to places, flown the flag in Dubai and Abu Dhabi in the Middle East. I've, I've visited, as we've said, the Netherlands and Norway. I've been twice to America. So I'm traveling again, um, flying the flag again. But it's about growing this campaign, as I say, and fundamentally it's getting the golf community to support cancer fighters worldwide, and hopefully it's achieving that. You're a bloody force of nature, so you're in, um, in thinking about that particular part of your story. I just kept coming back to Serene Botham, actually, who's mm-hmm. obviously a serial walker for charity as well and has been for many decades. I'm wondering if beefy's walks at all influenced or inspired you to initially embark on your own walking odyssey or is that just coincidence well i will say beefy didn't have a set of golf clubs on his back you know i think uh, i think he's, he's carrying he's, he's carrying a few extra pounds though let's let's be fair <laughs> oh, well I, I believe he enjoys the an odd bottle of claret yeah no, what he what, he, what he's uh, through his through his walks is, is phenomenal i don't think i mean cricket I was 19 years old, I think, in 1980 or was it 81 when he destroyed the Australians at cricket. I'm not a massive cricket fan, but you know he was he was a national hero. And but what he's done subsequently is phenomenal too. I don't think cricket not being my sport and walking, as I say, was something I'd not I'd not really thought about until for some reason I woke up with this idea of walking around Ireland with my golf bag was something I'd not thought about. So I didn't. If he did influence what I did, it was coincidence. Um, yeah. Okay. Just interested to know how clubs and individuals can reach out to you if they want to sign up for the Global Golf for Cancer Initiative. Yeah, I mean, I, I always say to, to golf clubs, import, the important thing is is you don't have to fly the flag literally. I mean, I, of course, I want as many golf clubs ultimately to be flying the flag on special dates and occasions, and importantly, during special events and getting the tours involved, and so that this this flag uh, or this and this logo, Global Golf for Cancer, becomes very very well known. Then certainly, I, I do see the campaign as engaging various organisations to, to 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 capitalise uh, on fundraising opportunities. That's not my skill, and I think it's important to know what you can and can't do. Having said that. I am a great believer in less is more. So I don't, I don't want to. I, I like a few select ideas that we want to develop that can actually really make an impact. Getting global golf for cancer well known is, is through through powerful stories. Is I suppose what I'm seeking to do. So go back to your question again, if you don't mind. It was about how can clubs reach out? Well, well, as I've said, whatever golf clubs do, if the golfers who play there encouraged more to help fight cancer, and that's not just about making donations uh, and, and by the way if people donate to global golf for cancer 100 percent of that money is going to go to cancer fighting causes around the world okay 
obviously for golf clubs says oh we want to hold a golf day we'd love to fly the flag but we want to um the money to go to a to a, a local hospice or whatever that's fighting cancer then you know that's fine uh, it's 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 not for me to tell them who to donate to if they want to donate to global health cancer as i say they can be assured that it's that it's going to help fight cancer all around the world uh, but if they have a special relationship with a cancer charity i say you can fly the flag and support that local cancer charity it's i think one of the reasons global golf for cancer works is that this flag doesn't fly it we not being specifically a charity we're a campaign campaign obviously with the charitable cause but we're not a charity and therefore if a club says well we support this charity and that charity i say great you can still fly the flag and support your whatever charity you choose it doesn't compete it hopefully complements and i think that's the difference so no club can could could, could actually say well we don't want to support global golf cancer because we support something else global golf cancer is not in competition it's it's just it's just saying golf community do more. If a result of our campaign, somebody sees, hears about the campaign and goes and visit, I often say this, and goes and visit their aunt or grandmother, whatever, who's had a cancer diagnosis, wow, it's doing something really, really positive. And, and you can't actually quantify that in terms of money. What I do know is there are 60 million golfers around the world. And if every golfer makes a euro, not necessarily in cash contribution, but in but in but in helping fight cancer in so many different ways, it's making a massive difference, and and that's what it's about. Yeah, and I guess just before we move on from this to the last uh, two questions, yeah, um, for fellow fair-skinned, fair-haired people out there, remember it's summertime in the northern hemisphere. Slip, mm. slop, slap. Stay in the shade. Don't expose yourself to uh, sunburn. You should be able to stay with mel- melanomas, hopefully. Well, yeah, your your skin cancer is my, my cancer is not skin cancer, but it is caused by sun damage. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely what you're saying. Cover up. Yeah, <laughs> simple yeah. as that. And it's northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere. Where, in fact, even on days, frankly, when the sun isn't out, even during the winter as well. I mean, you, yeah, UV can still get you during the winter uh, as well. Uh, even in these northern climes. True. True. Absolutely. Uh, Nick, as all regular listeners will know I generally finish well I always finish the same two final questions the first one relates to golfing bucket lists it's completely up to you how you interpret this particular question you might let us know where your five bucket list courses or locations are and why you've chosen them as I said you can be your 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 list can be approximately five there is some flexibility there so whatever whatever you wish to do with this particular particular question the floor is yours okay all right well I suppose there are uh there's no way I'd name five, as you know, I would have to pick four. Four being my number. Um, four is fine. <laughs> or, or eight, <laughs> if you want. <laughs> golf for cancer. Now, everything about me is four. I often sort of joke to people I sleep in a four-poster bed and, and everything, is, everything is kind of four. So let me see. I mean, if four in terms of um, courses I've not visited. I've been, I've been incredibly fortunate to visit so many of the great courses in the world, whether, whether it's through golf writing, working with Felder Design or, or, or indeed Global Golf for Cancer where our flag has flown at some, some, some very, very special places. If I take four places, yeah, that I, ha- that I haven't visited, so having been fortunate to visit so many, the, of the world's top 20, perhaps Fisher's Island is the, is the one that I would really love to go and visit 
that I haven't visited. Um, that may that, that may apply to the top fifty courses. Um, Fisher's Island, I've heard so much about it, but I've never been there. So, and apparently the fourth hole is incredible. So, so that would be one. Of course, being somebody interested in golf course design and architecture, I've heard about Tara E.T. in New Zealand. I would I would have to put that on my bucket list, my personal bucket list of places I've never been to. So Fisher's Island, Tara E.T. One of my favourite golf courses in the UK, uh, talk about unique golf courses, Westwood Ho in North Devon. I don't remember I'm from Devon. Westwood Ho, you, it's the only royal golf course in the world, Royal North Devon, where you can stand on the first tee and a sheep comes up and bleats at you. Okay, there are sheep, there are cows roaming around, there are electric fences around the greens. It's also an incredibly historic golf course for lots of reasons. Anyway, Westwood Ho is a special golf course in the UK I've been to. There's a place called Eastwood Ho. I believe it's around Cape Cod, not that far from Boston, where the US Open was finished wonderfully yesterday. Eastwood Ho, designed by Herbert Fowler, who created Walton Heath. So I, I know the architecture is going to be extremely interesting. It's also just looks a spectacular setting in a part of the world. I, I would like to know more. So I've got you. I've got you three: Fisher's Island, Tara Eti, Eastwood Ho, and I'm going to throw in Jasper which I know I'm going to visit uh, three hours drive by car from Banff. She's in Canada, yeah? Jasper and Banff. I ha- Is that a Danny Thompson? It's, it's, a, it's supposed to be better than Banff. Um, well, a lot of people say it's better than Banff Springs, which is, in, in, I have been fortunate to go there. It's, it's an incredible part of the world, the Rockies of Canada. It's a Danny Thompson, absolutely. Very highly regarded. So that's my fourth of that I haven't been to. Of those I have been to, if I if I could pick four, I'm going to say to be to be current, the Photon Links would have to be on that list of, of have to be on that list of, of extraordinary places that I would recommend others visit if they can. Mm-hmm. Hard to get to, expensive to get to, but otherworldly. Just out of interest, just a quick question on that. It, it's am I right in saying once you get off whatever at the last uh, aeroplane that you get off, it's about a three-hour drive yeah i believe there is an airport but but uh, if you've got a lot of time that you can fly to within 45 minutes but it must be a flight that goes once a week or something normal normal travel from from the uk or from ireland you'd have to fly to um oslo uh but from oslo it's it's a two-hour flight north into the arctic circle just about and then a three-hour drive correct so it's a uh, okay, um, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, and be warned: renting a car and, and the cost of everything in Norway is is expensive to most of the world. Uh, but yeah, mind blowing. The other one uh, at the other end of the planet, Cape Wickham uh, in Tasmania, which I was fortunate to visit and fly the flag at um, back in December two thousand and nineteen. Eighteen, just in well, stunning setting. Eighteen, very very well-designed golf holes, an iconic lighthouse, I believe the tallest in the Southern Hemisphere, do- dominates, the, dominates the surroundings, but definitely one of the best golf courses I've ever played that not that many people know about. So as a bucket list, Lofoten links Cape Wickham, and then I'm going to pick two more that I would put on a bucket list if you've not been there, and for very different reasons. First, I'm going to say Old Head links in Ireland, it means a lot to me. It's where I finished my golf walk. 
and the fourth hole has, has another lighthouse right behind it. So to finish my walk there, let me tell you, the fourth hole is the most spectacular hole in terms of being on 200 foot cliffs. And what I say about that hole and that golf course is, yeah, it may not, you know, it may not be the best piece of land to have created the most beautiful golf course. But if you want, if you want spectacular with a, with a, on steroids with, to me, it's the only golf course in the world I've, I've in the fourth tee actually encapsulated where you stand on the tee and your jaw drops in the way it drops. If you go to Gra the Grand Canyon for the first time, you just go, wow, that's just, it, it's mind blowing. You have to see it to uh, understand it fully, how powerful it is. So Old Head, and the other one I'm going to say is is very different, Royal Dornoch. I'm fortunate to be a member at Royal Dornoch, very fortunate to be a member there, because to me it's absolutely golf as it should be, uh, and golf at its most enjoyable for so many reasons. It's, it's in, an incredibly welcoming golf club. Uh, it's a place where I always say you just... You, if you wear a watch, take it off and throw it away because time doesn't matter in Dornock. The golf course has the most incredible, seamless flow around. Wonderful, wonderful green sites, wonderful. That, well, the whole golf experience at Dornock is, is very special. I once said of Dornock, it should have four letters in front of Dornock. I'll tell you what they are in a second, but it's because if ever you meet people around the world in, in Dornock, I people always have a just you just mention the word Dornock and people go ah oh, it just has that incredibly positive uh, feeling to it and and they should put a triple a h before the word Dornock because it ah oh, Dornock you, you can you can barely say Dornock on its own it's that it is to me it's that special so there are my there are my there are my four that I visited and and would would recommend her on other people's bucket lists, Lafoten, Cape Wickham, Old Head and Royal Dornock. They're not private, so you can play. I mean, obviously some are more expensive than others and some are definitely more difficult to get to than others. None of them are easy to get to, but then that's part of part of the journey, isn't it? Part of the experience. Most certainly, most certainly. Look, uh, finally, we're on to the book recommendations. I know you're a big PG Woodhouse <laughs> yes. fan. And obviously as a long time reader of golf books, I'm interested to know what two books you would recommend to our listeners to augment any golfing library. Well, P.G. Woodhouse, absolutely. Um, there, there are two books that inspired me to, to, to uh, along with Savvy and his 1976 exploits at Royal Birkdale, if there are, if there are two books that, that inspired me to get more into golf, one would be uh, The World Atlas of Golf, which as somebody who loves exotic places around the world, and travel. Uh, the World Atlas of Golf showed me as this teenager that golf was global and that there were places like the Jockey Club in Buenos Aires and and, and yeah, Royal Melbourne and then that but then also golf in, in, in some very far off places all around the world. To me that was very exciting. And and the book of course is 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 wonderful in so many ways. World Atlas of Golf as an informative, interesting book about golf around the world. And then let's, the, the second book would have to be comedy. And yes, P.G. Woodhouse, you mentioned. I read I read a collection of his stories when I was, I don't know, 14, 15. And I'm almost still laughing. I just thought they were so funny. And they 
to me, a good book is about getting you a sense of place, a sense of time that you 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 you, you can almost go to you can almost feel you there in a dreamlike way. And P.G. Woodhouse is, is the oldest member sitting under the tree, recounting these these extraordinary stories in, in such a funny way. That that's that would be my my other book. Any book that has collection of stories okay. by P.G. Woodhouse on golf. You're happy out as long as that's yes. the criteria. Excellent. Before we conclude, Nick, you might share with listeners how they can learn more about the Global Golf for Cancer campaign and how they might be able to reach out to you via social media or indeed any other channels that you might be available through. Sure. I think the simple answer to that is uh, our website. So Global Golf for number four, globalgolf4cancer.org. That's how you can find out more about Global Golf Cancer and indeed how to contact me. Uh, social media, I would love any listener to this podcast to, to, to follow me on either Twitter or on Instagram. Um, and that's at GG4Cancer. Excellent. Well, look, Nick Edmund, it is always a great pleasure to speak to you. And this occasion was no different. Your indefatigable, never give up attitude is, is so inspirational. Golf is in the headlines for arguably some of the wrong reasons of late. Your story is one of giving back. With this in mind, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you on behalf of the Global Fraternity of Golf for all that you continue to do in raising much-needed awareness and, and ultimately funding to the benefit of cancer research. And let's hope four times remains a charm. Keep fighting the good fight. I look forward to taking you up on that very gracious invitation to join you at Royal Dornock someday. Go easy. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you, Shane. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.